Hey listeners, before we get into our episode this week, we wanted to acknowledge the author of the source text these movies were based upon is an unrepentant transphobe. We recognize that some of you will want to skip these episodes for these reasons. We completely understand, and we'll see you on the other side. To everyone in the LGBTQIA community, you are valid and loved. In the meantime, on behalf of the Third One Sucks and Retrograde Orbit Radio as a whole, fuck TERFs, and we say trans rights. Welcome to The Third One Sucks, where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? We are talking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. It is a fantasy film directed by Chris Columbus, based on the books by J.K. Rowling that follows the adventures of Harry Potter, the boy who lived, and his friends Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, Albus Dumbledore, and the rest of the wizarding world in their battle against the powerful dark wizard Lord Voldemort. Starring Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, Emma Watson, Robbie Coltrane, Tom Felton, Alan Rickman, Kenneth Branagh, and Richard Harris. It premiered on November 3rd, 2002 in Odin Leicester Square in London and was distributed by Warner Brothers. What's our fan review this week? Our review comes from Eric Campos from Film Threat, who said, Two out of five. This film is basically one big Scooby-Doo episode. This may be not the funniest Uh review we've had, but this may be my favorite so far. Because while I disagree with the star number he gave it, Mm -hmm. he is right on the money in his observation. (laughs) Yeah, the thing is, it is totally a Scooby-Doo episode, but he's saying it like it's a bad thing. Yeah. (laughs) Scooby-Doo is such a good format. I don't know why. It's real dumb, but it's a really good format. It's comfort food. At least for me, it is. All right, on to the movie. I think this is a good film in a lot of ways. It's campy and silly and fun. We'll get into it. Mm -hmm. But I think by movie two, we find Warner Brothers having really figured out what they're doing. The first movie was definitely cautious in some ways. They were feeling it out. By this movie, they know what they're up to and they really hit the ground running. It certainly feels more confident throughout. It does, as do most of these until the very last few books follow a very familiar formula so like we always do we're gonna open on them dursleys yep the abusive parents who he puts up with for (laughs) reasons yeah you like i said we'll get to why they're around more later but mostly they're around for a quick few minutes to just sort of establish that harry's life outside the wizarding world still ain't great Mm mm-hmm And summer has been particularly tough because, and I can empathize with Harry here. This is a challenging situation. He's a kid who's been alone and unloved effectively his entire life. Last year, he suddenly found out, oh, hey, I have a place where I belong. And within that place, I have friends. I have people who like me and who want to hang out with me and who want to take care of me. And then he goes home and spends the entire summer hearing from none of them, which I imagine must make staying with the Dursleys even worse than it was before he knew that there was something better out there. Yeah, that's got to be pretty isolating. And we find out this time it was not the Dursleys who were trying to chase away the owls. But in fact, Harry's friends have been sending him letters all summer, and even a birthday cake at some point, that were (laughs) intercepted 
by the saddest looking elf in the entire world. Yeah, uh, Dobby, man, I have some complicated feelings about Dobby in this movie. <laughs> uh, again, for the listener, I I didn't grow up with Harry Potter, so this is all my first exposure to any of this. And Dobby is, uh, A, endlessly depressing, and B, still really abusive. <laughs> yes. There is a complexity to Dobby that I don't know that J.K. Rowling's meant to be there. <laughs> yeah, that might be a bit generous. But when you read Dobby as a kid, mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense. He's a very straightforward trope. Sure. Somehow seeing him visualized, even when I was younger, although I was 20 when this movie came out. Okay. When you see him visualized, it really makes it worse. And I don't know that I mean that negatively. It probably drives home what Dobby is supposed to be, which is this very poor being who has spent his whole life being abused in nearly every way you can imagine and is struggling to find any sense of agency and purpose. And that's a weird thing to inject into a kid's movie about wizards. Here's my thing is that it's also a kid's movie about exactly that because that's what Harry is. But Harry, you know, that's a Harry's not a shitty also. So like, I don't know if it's intentional that they're trying to show us two sides of that coin of like, sometimes kids grow up in abusive households and they learn empathy and compassion. And sometimes they turn into shit heels like their abusive caretakers are. And usually it's some mix of both, but it kind of dichotomizes the two here. And it's weird to see Harry like have no like compassion for Dobby as an individual. Like he goes real quick to like, I don't know. It's so hard trying to contextualize how I feel about this character. (laughs) Harry's feelings for Dobby will change throughout the movie to some degree but you're right it is interesting the level of scorn with which Harry Potter initially greets Dobby Mm -hmm. and I suppose as you say he's a 12 year old who has just discovered this seemingly odd creature who's been preventing him from talking to his friends all summer so his own abuse is certainly bubbling to the surface here Absolutely. But yeah, it's weird. And that's a layer. I don't think I had really even put a lot of thought into with Dobby. The fact that he sort of represents the opposite end of the abuse dichotomy from Harry. That's interesting. Again, I don't know that that's what Rowling intended. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe she was mining some deep thoughts here. I'm so reticent to give her any amount of credit for anything that is good. (laughs) So many of these things are, again, sort of broad tropes that play in a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. So when you read, as these early books kind of feel more fairy tale-y, so when you read a fairy tale book and you read about a race of, you know, subservient fantasy elves, sure, yeah, of course, that's going to show up in a fairy tale or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's fine. When it becomes part of a seven book series that spends many years examining this world and is set in a present time in the first book it it, okay sure it feels kind of like a trope by the time you get to book three or four or five and Hermione is going to be our proxy for this discussion throughout the series okay 
any actual human, even children who are reading this book, are saying to themselves, why have the wizards been enslaving elves for hundreds of years? There's no way you can justify this as a good behavior thing. That's a real weird thing for them just to be like, not only is it like a thing that happens and is like, I guess, tolerated, but they're like specific rule sets set in place for how to take care of your slave. It's just, it's not good. It's not great, Mark. Oh man, it's only going to get weirder because you're going to meet elves who do not want to lose their lives as a slave and who get real upset when they get given clothing. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yep. oh God. <laughs> Sorry oh, to put Lord. that out there for you now, but that's coming. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> All right, so let's get out of the Dursley household. Uh, Just like Harry wants to. (laughs) Yes, Harry escapes by way of a flying car, badly driven by Ron's older twin brothers, Fred and George. (laughs) Who I don't think we touched on at all last episode, but Fred and George are the middle-ish Weasley siblings, they're twin brothers, they're best friends, they're really good guys throughout, they look out for Ron and his pals, and really all they want to do is have fun. They're two guys whose entire goal in life is to just relax and enjoy a good life. Gotcha. I do enjoy the Weasleys so far. They're some of my favorite characters. Yeah, and Fred and George are gonna, they're gonna thread in and out of the movies a good bit. I think they're an even bigger presence in the book, but it's nice to see them I think they're really starting to find their feet, the actors, and maybe the writers writing the characters. Fred and George are starting to really come into their own this movie. It's fun. So they ride away in a flying car. We follow the script to Diagon Alley, which is where we always go when we leave the Dursleys. Mm -hmm. And hey, there's a handsome-looking wizard fella at a book signing. There sure is. (laughs) This is Gilderoy Lockhart. Yes, and I just, I'm going to say this up front because I was thinking it through the entire movie and I'm going to be thinking it through this entire podcast. How tragic is it that Phil Hartman wasn't around to play this role? Oh, I had never thought of that, but you're right. Oh boy, that's perfect. It's so perfect. Exactly the right sort of kind of comic bluster and unearned confidence. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Now I'm sad that he's not around to play that role. I I apologize. But yeah, I, every now and then I just get sad that Phil Hartman's not around. Yeah, that's fair. All right. So Gilderoy Lockhart, who is a sort of famous wizard explorer, adventurer. I'm not even sure how to categorize him. Uh, he's a wizard celebrity of some kind. Yeah, he writes books ostensibly about the journeys that he has within the wizarding world. So he fights dragons and he captures uh, mythical creatures and what have you. And then he comes home and he writes books about them. And it turns out he's been hired as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Because you might recall the uncomfortably racist, jingoistic turban teacher (laughs) got himself in trouble at the end of last year. Yes, and I'm sure Snape is just thrilled that this position has been filled by, once again, not him. (laughs) You are correct, and I'm glad you picked up on that, because it's a thing the books stress heavily. 
that I don't know that the movies do in much more than subtext, just how much Snape wants that position. Obviously, he mentions it once or twice, but it's a real heavy theme in the books. To me, like, that's the only thing I know about the character so far. <laughs> he, he, he hates he, Harry he, Potter. He Yeah, he hates Harry Potter. He has He's just real skeezy as a, as a presence of a person. Yep. And he wants to do that class. He wants to teach dark arts, defense of the dark arts. <laughs> and that he's Alan Rickman, because I'm, I mean, of course. Oh, yeah. Alan Rickman just performing a masterwork in this fun but lighthearted children's literature film. Mm-hmm. That's basically it for the preschool stuff. We do briefly meet Lucius Malfoy, who is Draco's dad. Yes. You can tell by his name and his imperious nose that he's a bad guy. He looks like the elf king from Hellboy (laughs) 2. He does. (laughs) We really meet him long enough for him to sneer at Harry and slip a small book into Ginny Weasley's bag. Mm -hmm. Ginny being now the youngest Weasley, she is the last of the Weasley clan and this is her first year. Get used to her, she's gonna be around. So Dobby seals off platform nine and three quarters because his entire goal, and we didn't mention this uh, when I was talking about why he was stopping letters and cakes from arriving to Harry. Dobby is convinced that something terrible is going to happen to Harry at school, and the only way he can save Harry is by preventing him from going to school. Mm -hmm. So he seals off platform nine and three quarters, but hey, no problem, the Weasleys have a flying car. I don't recall, does the movie mention that the Weasleys have a flying car because Mr. Weasley sort of has a hobbyist interest in muggle technology? Not explicitly, but it does say that like he's just super interested in muggles. He studies us like we're some kind of exotic species. Yes, <laughs> and one of his favorite things to do is sort of tinker with muggle tech because... When you have magic and you live in a society that has magic, your technology tree develops very differently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he is very interested in all of the things that humans do to compensate for their lack of magic. That makes sense. So they take the flying car to school. They're running late. They're hurrying. And the car gets destroyed by something literally called the Whomping Willow. That assures a name. <laughs> it whomps things. It's a willow tree that whomps things. What do you want? It's on the nose. All right. <laughs> That's. Rowling takes a lot of flack for this, for her very, very bad naming conventions. She's good at writing a high adventure story. She's not very good at names. Mostly mm-hmm. she just kind of makes fake sounding Latin things. I'm sure. Anyway, a lot of things go wrong here, obviously, because the car is hurt. The car is broken. Harry and Ron are hurt, and Ron's wand has been snapped. And listen, the Weasley family ain't made of money. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to get him a new one quickly. Yeah, which was certainly a choice. There are two choices made to side characters in this movie that I'm like, so we just really wanted to make it the Harry show, didn't we? We just wanted this to be the, the Harry show for the last... 40% of this movie? This will get better in later books, especially as the big three become the big three and kind of operate as a team. It will always be the Harry show to some degree. Mm -hmm. We will actually get many of the other kids in school involved in 
important and significant plot things eventually. But especially now, yeah, we are just... Poor Hermione's just going to get fridged here in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure does. <laughs> and I guess the way we're getting Ron out of the way is, oh, hey, his uh, his wand's broke. What are we going to do? <laughs> Tape it together, I guess. He broke his wand. It's funny because he's poor. <laughs> yeah, the school certainly doesn't have spare wands sitting around anywhere. No, I mean, they definitely don't have in the budget to replace a wand, especially, you know, (laughs) in the last movie, didn't McGonagall gift Harry, like, a super expensive, like, broom? Yeah. Yeah, and she gave him one because the regular old broomsticks that the school keeps around weren't good enough. So the school just has a fleet of broomsticks on hand. Mm -hmm. Those were some choices. Yep. All right. So all of this leads to... Harry and Ron getting in a little bit of trouble, obviously, because this is not how you're supposed to arrive at school. Right. Effectively, though, they get little more than a slap on the wrist, right? It always just seems to be like they feel very Dennis the Menacey to me or yeah. early Bart Simpson where like they sure do fuck up a lot, but nothing really comes of it. <laughs> this is an interesting thing that cuts both ways and one of the most fascinating aspects of Hogwarts. Right. So part of Hogwarts, it's obviously a school. They're supposed to learn how to be wizards. Mm -hmm. There's also this entire Quidditch thing going on that's very significant to everyone. But layered within that is the yearly competition for house points. Right. Mm -hmm. Who wins the cup? Which they don't talk about in this movie, by the way. Right. It doesn't come up much. But because of that. Students are regularly given and docked points based on their performance or their behavior. Mm -hmm. Any teacher can give and take away points. And this is significant because that includes the teachers who represent the houses themselves. Okay. So each house has a teacher who is sort of the headmaster of that house. That teacher is allowed to assign points. And so we'll often see Harry being gifted points. And similarly to right now, the punishment for Harry falls to Professor McGonagall, the head of Gryffindor. And of course, she's not going to suspend Harry from school. She's the head of Gryffindor. She wants to win that Quidditch Cup. Yeah, yeah, that that tracks. But it does cut both ways because Snape often lets Draco off Mm -hmm. or gives him extra points or unfairly docks other kids. So it's such a weird power dynamic that must be going on where a bunch of adults are playing weird power games through proxy children. I remember school. (laughs) This is just school. You're just talking about school, Mark. All right. I retract the last four minutes. You're right. This all all tracks correctly. (laughs) You mean you're telling me that a teacher would let off a shitty student because they're good at a sport? I don't know about that. That's too far-fetched. <laughs> All right. All right. So once we sort of settle into the school year, the first significant thing that happens is while coming back from detention, Harry and Ron find Mrs. Norris petrified. Mrs. Norris being the pet cat of the school janitor. That janitor really has it in for our protagonists for apparently no reason. Oh yeah, he is he is sure something else. <laughs> and he will continue to be and like many of the folks we find early in the book, his roles are only going to expand throughout the series. So the relationship 
between the school janitor and Harry Potter is going to be a significant thing through most of this series. <laughs> All right. But written next to the cat, the petrified cat, uh-huh. in blood Ooh. is the following message. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air, beware. And to be clear, that's H-E-I-R, not A-I-R. <laughs> yes. This is going to become a big question for the second act of this film. Who is the heir? Uh We're going to have Harry and Ron and Hermione run around asking some questions for a little bit, but ultimately we're going to get the basic story from Professor McGonagall, who's going to explain to Harry and thus to the audience that the Chamber of Secrets is a secret room built by Salazar Slytherin, the founder of Slytherin House, uh-huh. where he could store a monster that only his heir, the heir of Slytherin, can control. The single purpose of this monster being to purge muggle-born wizards. That whole eugenics racism talk from last time is starting to pay off. Oh, yeah. Why... Why, why was he allowed to build this room in a school? Uh, because he helped. Look, Mark, when when rich people want to have a thing happen. <laughs> That's a fair point. They can just make it happen because they're rich. And he was one of them that founded it. So, like, I mean, you've seen the school. They have some money. Right. Yeah. And this school was obviously not built entirely for the benefit of the students. Uh, clearly. so you know just baked into the school for children by one of the creators and founders of the school Mm -hmm. is a secret room with a giant monster built to cleanse the unpure woof so that's fun that's a fun thing that's happening (laughs) yeah fun (laughs) (laughs) and i like that and perhaps not without merit Harry and Ron's immediate presumption is it must be the boy that's mean to us. It has to be Draco. <laughs> right. Like when you're a kid. <laughs> and I guess it kind of makes sense insofar as he is a member of Slytherin House mm-hmm. and he is the scion of a long standing pure blood family. Mm-hmm. And his family has kind of historic ties to working for sketchy dudes. So I suppose it's not an unfair assumption. They are certainly caricatures of villains. So his name is basically Draco Badman. Yes, yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, so, of course, they're going to be like, it was red herring all along. <laughs> and the way they decide to investigate this is through something called polyjuice potion. Yes, that's the juice that they give you whenever they turn you polyamorous, right? <laughs> that's that how would that have works. made probably for a far more interesting second act of this film. I think so. And then you don't have to worry about ships. Everybody's just together with everybody else. It's great. <laughs> this is inexplicably a thing that Hagrid helps them out with, or at least tips them off. Because Hagrid is very good-hearted and wants very much to help those kids. Mm-hmm. But Hagrid is not always the best decision-maker. 
no, he, no, no, not really. <laughs> and it's an interesting dynamic because he is probably the most loyal person in Hogwarts. He is probably the person in Hogwarts who loves Harry the most. And so he desperately wants to help Harry, and consequently, Harry trusts him with everything. It's the first human who has shown Harry love. Right. Harry trusts him with everything, and that's great, and it's a sweet relationship, and it's beautiful, and it's nice for Harry to have this adult mentor who's looking out for him. But Hagrid doesn't make good decisions, and Harry inherently trusts Hagrid, so it leads us to weird places. Yeah, he <laughs> he's just a big, dumb fluffy teddy bear who loves his pets. That's all Hagrid is. That's all he wants. <laughs> he is. So, they use this polyjuice potion. They brew it up with hair from Crab and Goyle, who we haven't talked about yet, but are the henchmen for Draco. Mm-hmm. They're the, yeah, boss, those guys. Right, exactly. And they polymorph into them. Comically, they still have their own voices, mm-hmm. but it turns out that Hermione, who was trying to polymorph into a Slytherin girl whose name I did not write down, it was something with an M. Something to that effect, yes. Accidentally took a cat hair off of that girl's sweater instead of her own hair, and Hermione <laughs> is now a cat. Yeah. This is the second time Hermione's benched in this movie. Well, I guess the first time, but... Right. The first out of two times. Because for very obvious reasons, Hermione does not want to stroll out into the hallway looking like a cat. Mm-hmm. So she's going to hang back in the bathroom while Harry and Ron, in the guise of Crab and Goyle, go to investigate. But we cannot depart this scene without first touching on the fact this is the series introduction to Moaning Myrtle, possibly my least favorite character in the Harry Potter canon. Uh, she's your least favorite? I'll give her a kindness in the movies because mm-hmm. the actress who plays her manages to inject a real pathos to her. Yeah. There is a surprising depth to Moaning Myrtle in the movies. But the carryover from the books makes it very hard for me to like her. <laughs> That's that's fair. <laughs> but she is here, and she's going to help out, and for reasons that are difficult to explain, Harry Potter is going to consistently encounter this lady. All right. Myrtle is, for the moment, a ghost that haunts the girls' bathroom in the Gryffindor Hall of Hogwarts. Okay. We'll come back to her later, but I think that's that's as far as we know about her right now, right? Yeah, I, we know that they slid the introduction in there because they were making the polyjuice in there earlier in the movie. And right, nobody wants to go in the girls' bathroom on that floor, I assume? That's right, that's right. Because Moaning Myrtle is there. And Moaning Myrtle is depressing. And here's the thing. This is what grown-up Mark sees in Moaning Myrtle that makes her perhaps a more interesting character. Okay. I think what you read from Moaning Myrtle is she's a person who, one, she's in Arrested Development, obviously, so that's a weird thing. All of the ghosts are weird for that reason. (laughs) But she's truly just a person who 
probably didn't do a good job of making friends to begin with and now is trapped in this weird ghost world and Extra doesn't know how to make friends and really she just wants a friend. Mm-hmm. And I don't wonder if perhaps part of younger Mark's stressors about Myrtle was that I could do a lot of self-projection onto that model as a kid. Sure. That got a lot better as I grew up, but the kid who doesn't really know how to socialize and can't figure out how to be friends with people, maybe I was just like vibing with Myrtle too much and yeah. <laughs> had to push her away. I'm going to coin that Shinji Akari syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> I think just so much of characters that people don't like in media is a lot of that. All right. So Crab Harry and Goyle Ron go to investigate Draco. Don't really learn anything useful, at least as regards the Chamber of Secrets. This entire plot line kind of goes nowhere and suddenly it's Christmas. I feel like you could say that about the last movie, too. (laughs) yes this plot goes nowhere and suddenly it's christmas and then the actual (laughs) movie happens i like this in a way the books are driven by the school year as Uh are the movies so we mark time by specific events the start of classes the various quidditch games the holidays finals and in a way As a grown-up, I'm very removed from that. But reading it as a kid, that is how you mark time. It's summer break, or what tests are we taking, or what sports are we playing, or what holiday are we on. Totally. And that's a pretty authentic kind of kid view of the world, I think. I absolutely agree with that. All right, so Christmas time is upon us. It seems like as the first semester has passed, the student body writ large has become suspicious of Harry because a lot of people view him as the potential kind of heir of Salazar Slytherin. And again, not unfairly. That was me watching this movie. I'm like, so it's Harry, right? So (laughs) is that the twist? And then I guess about halfway through the movie, they're like, no, it's not Harry. (laughs) But it's making life difficult for Harry I think in part because he's already sort of a kid in a glass box, right? He's the boy who lived. Mm -hmm. Parents want to meet him to thank him for a thing he did when he was one day old. Yeah. And now everyone is suspicious of him. So Christmas isn't necessarily a great time for Harry, but he does find an enchanted diary. Yep. That's the thing that happens. Which is such an interesting plot device. It turns out this diary belonged to Tom Riddle, a student who went to Hogwarts 50 years ago, which also coincidentally is the last time the Chamber of Secrets was open. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally. A lot of problems in this book, as is often the case, could have been solved by talking to an adult. <laughs> Although that is potentially not true here because the adults in this world don't seem to make safe or good decisions. So maybe not. Yeah, I still feel like the biggest mistake made in this movie was Harry just not telling Dumbledore what was up. Yes, absolutely. If at any point he would have mentioned his concern for Ginny or the diary, this would have been a much shorter film. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, it turns out this diary is magicked such that it can write back. Its original owner can sort of 
respond to Harry. This is not writing across time. This is just a matter of the diary sort of having an internal memory based on its author. Yeah, that's a weird thing. I couldn't kind of parse out what was going on there because like, well, I mean, if you're listening to this, you've seen the movie or if you're listening to this, you don't care about the movie being spoiled because you're listening to this. So Voldemort was in this last movie as like a ghost man carved onto the back of a caricature's head. And then he turned into a ghost again and flew off. So, like, two things. He's dead, and his spirit is not in that book. And two, death doesn't seem to stop him anyway, so this seems like a weird plot device. Allow me to help you out with this. Okay. So we will eventually learn that when he... Before he died, Lord Voldemort basically cut his soul into seven pieces and hid those pieces in objects of power. Ah, and how many uh, books were there again? Just curious. (laughs) Coincidentally, seven. Oh, wow, that's crazy. So these things are called, and here comes a word, horcruxes. Oh, and that was one of many horcruxes, I guess. Yes, it's a specific thing, like it's a secret ancient wizard power (laughs) and usually historically speaking within the context of the wizarding world a wizard can maybe create one of these things it's hard to do it's sort of considered terrible and dark right it's an evil thing sure but a wizard can embed himself into a single object he can remove his soul from himself and put it somewhere else for safekeeping So what makes Voldemort extra cool slash scary is that he divided himself into seven parts and put him into seven different places for safekeeping. So when his body was killed, he didn't die. So he now has to go about reassembling these seven bits of himself. One of them is in his snake, Nagini. Okay. One of them is in this diary. So that is really, it turns out, what is fueling this diary is actually just a piece of Voldemort himself and not some sort of hokey. Oh yeah. It's a memory spelly thingy. It's just, there's just a piece of an evil wizard in here. Okay. I, my follow-up question to all this is, did he have to give up a limb to bring his soul back and stick it into an object? Because otherwise the Elric brothers are going to be real pissed about this. That you can just like do this if you learn enough. <laughs> no, he did not. So he's, I guess he's got the better end of the deal here. I do like to imagine just Voldemort <laughs> as a torso with a head trying to like pull off these last few. Yeah. He's just like Lord cranging it. He's in a giant robot body. Oh God. Yes. I want that for the seventh movie. <laughs> just his head and, Oh, man, what do they call that? My turtle's cred is hurting right now. There's a word for his exosuit. I think it's called the exosuit. That sounds right. Yeah, I want that in the seventh (laughs) movie. That's how I want Deadly Hallows to end. Just him and one of those and the Technodrome's there for some reason. (laughs) So Harry talks to the book for a while. He learns that the owner was Tom Riddle. Mm -hmm. And Tom Riddle in his diary, blames a young Hagrid for opening the Chamber of Secrets. Okay. And we will find out that this is sort of 
how the truth was told 50 years ago. The official story is that this was accidentally or on purpose Hagrid's fault. And Hagrid had to go away for a while. And eventually, Dumbledore in charge of the school is able to bring Hagrid back on as the groundskeeper. But this is the backstory for why Hagrid never graduated from Hogwarts. Fun. Now, my follow-up here is, so if they're all that old and Dumbledore knows that Tom Riddle is Voldemort. Yes. Just clarifying, because if he didn't, why would he not? It's a strange story, and I don't want to spoil too much of it. Frankly, I'm not sure it's ever going to make a ton of sense. That's fair. But the real short answer is that Dumbledore is sort of playing a shadow war against Voldemort. He already knows Voldemort's on the rise. Dumbledore knows that Harry is the most powerful chess piece on the board, and he's playing a very careful shadow war to educate Harry while trying to protect him, but while also sort of keeping Voldemort in the dark about what each of them knows. So okay. Dumbledore is gambling with this small boy's life at all times. That's that's the background to what's happening every year, and that's why Dumbledore doesn't just ride in and fix things all the time. Mm-hmm. This is all a complex shadow game he's playing against Voldemort. Cool. That seems incredibly cool and ethical. Oh, yeah. There, there are some real ethical ramifications. And there is a point, at least in the books, I can't remember in the movie, where Dumbledore confronts them in a conversation with Harry, and it is a challenging conversation. As it should be. <laughs> All right. So, the diary disappears. Mm-hmm. Someone has taken it back from Harry. Hermione, in the meantime, gets herself petrified, so that's her off the screen again. Yep. And Professor Dumbledore uh, and Lucius Malfoy show up with Cornelius Fudge to take Hagrid away because the Chamber of Secrets has been opened again, and the only explanation is it must be the guy who opened it the first time. His name is Cornelius Fudge? His name is 100% Cornelius Fudge, yes. Jesus, okay. He is the Prime Minister of... The Chocolate. Council of Magic. I forget what it's called right now, and I feel very bad about that, but he's the Prime Minister of the Wizards. Okay. Not Chocolate Town. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, please continue. I just had a moment with that name. It's a legitimately goofy name, and it's fun because he is the Minister of Magic in Great Britain. Okay. Which means that the actual, like, the crown is aware of magic. Okay. And has, like, discussions with Cornelius about the things that are going on in the wizarding world at the times when they cross over into Muggleland. Okay, that's fair enough. And I suppose it's not any more ridiculous than Rupert Grint. Right, <laughs> good point. <laughs> Alright, so Hagrid is taken away while Ron and Harry are hanging out in his hut. Mm-hmm. But they're using... The best plot device of all time, the Cloak of Invisibility. Uh-huh. They will get just mileage galore out of that cloak. I bet they will. And as he is being taken away, Hagrid kind of looks at the air and just sort of muses out loud, Boy, you know, if anyone was going to uh, to be around after I leave, I'd really... The last thing I'd like to say as a free man is that it'd be a good idea to follow the spiders. A totally normal thing that totally normal people would say. Yeah. So one of two things should have happened here. 
Mm-hmm. One, somebody is in earshot and they should say, Hagrid, what insane secret message are you trying to send? <laughs> that was right. very obvious. Or two, no one is in earshot, in which case, why doesn't he just whisper, hey, Harry, there's a giant spider in the woods. Also, we know that Dumbledore can see them, too. They make a point of that, but then they don't do anything with it. Yeah, that is very interesting. Dumbledore has all sorts of plots within plots within plots going on. Okay. All right, so they follow the spiders into the woods at night, like you do, mm-hmm. and they find Agragog, Hagrid's pet spider. That's a whole ass name. It sure is, and it's a giant spider. Oh, and listen, man. I don't mind spiders. Spiders do not bother me on a general basis. But giant fantasy movie spiders will always creep me out. Okay, buddy, here's the thing. Buddy old pal of mine. You know who spiders <laughs> do freak out? This oh, guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> this must have been a difficult scene for you. Terrifying. Already earlier <laughs> in the movie, whenever like just tiny spiders are crawling away from these like blood-stained whatever. Ooh, why were yeah. why were they there? And uh Rupert Grint, I mean uh his less ridiculous character <laughs> name, uh Ron Weasley, right. was like, yo, spiders though, spiders suck, right? 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 Harry's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just spiders, bro. Rupert Grint is the only smart character in this movie, I feel like. It's like, can we not go to the den of giant fucking spiders, please? Can we not do that? That would be all right. He's like, no, just chill out. It's fine. They know Harry, uncle. Everything will be fine. Okay, yeah, but there's like hundreds of these things at various sizes that go from- That are all moving in concert. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the one that Frodo kills in Lord of the Rings that they end up talking to. <laughs> I, like, there's dog-sized spiders. <laughs> yep. Just there's all spider-sized spiders. spiders. There's Volkswagen-sized spiders. <sighs> and so they go to talk to the spider, and the spider's like, yeah, here's some cryptic shit, but guess what? The, it wasn't him. He never done did the thing. It wasn't Harry Uncle. That's really all the spider's here to tell them is it wasn't Hagrid. He's not here to offer them any useful or actionable information. Yeah. Also, uh, we gonna eat y'all. We gonna eat y'all because we're giant-ass right. spiders. Then Chitty Chitty Bang Bang busts in there as a literal deuce ex machina. Yes. To pull them out. That tracks so well on a number of fronts. My favorite of which... Hagrid has a special relationship with magical creatures. That's his thing. That's what he does. Yes. He's basically like a horse whisperer for the entire magical world. <laughs> Accurate so far. Consequently, he seems to think that everyone else should have that ability, and he very regularly gets not only Harry and Ron, but all sorts of people into trouble by telling them to go talk to magical creatures that are going to kill them when they get there. I feel like that conversation needs to happen. Like... <laughs> at the end of this, if they could have MCU'd this thing, and after the credits, had just Ron and Harry pull him aside and be like, Yo, dog, your spider friend tried to fucking eat us. Maybe you should do <laughs> yeah. something about that shit. Maybe don't send us to our death because we don't all talk to... Look, I know I got snakes down, but everything else seems to want to just kill me. Right. <laughs> so... And it's not for anything helpful. That spider was useless. He's like, yo, it wasn't Harry Uncle. Yeah, we know that. He's Harry Uncle. <laughs> yeah. Good news, though. Hermione, even though she is fridged and off screen, uh-huh. is the smart one able to solve this crisis. Of course she is. <laughs> because she has clutched in her hand the page of a book about a basilisk. Yep. 
which means we finally know what the muggle-killing monster in the secret chamber is. It's a giant lizard that turns people to stone. Yep, uh, just a big old honking snake that I guess Harry talks to through the walls throughout this movie. It's all very strange. I'm not going to lie. It's all, it's, it's all This is a movie about wizards for children. Let's <laughs> just remind ourselves. Ginny is taken to the chamber. Mm-hmm. Poor Ginny is nothing in this movie. She's going to get legitimate agency later, I promise. She's going to turn into actually one of the more interesting female characters in this entire franchise. Oh, good. But right now, she is just a female to be rescued. So she has been taken to the chamber. Harry and Ron, of course, run. They know where it is and they know how to get there. But in the meantime, the school has very sensibly assigned the one human in this school whose entire job it is to combat the dark arts to go take care of this thing. Sure. Not Phil Hartman. Right. Not Phil Hartman. He's written entire books about how he's great at capturing and getting the best of difficult magical creatures. He's made an entire career of this. Mm -hmm. Turns out he's a fraud. He meets other interesting explorers, steals their stories, and then casts memory wiping spells on them. Yeah, that woof. (laughs) Which is appropriately a real big no-no in the wizarding world. Those memory wiping spells are not for casual use or really any use for that matter. And because Harry and Ron have sorted him out, he's going to try to do the same to them. Mm-hmm. But because he's using Ron's busted wand, he accidentally memory wipes himself. Yeah, that was Chekhov's gun finally going off. Sure was. And amusingly, that could keep his reputation intact. I suppose Harry and Ron could spill on him, but now the official story can just be, ah, oh, poor Lockhart, he spent so many years doing valiant things, only to get taken down by, you know, a defective wand. But hey... We are racing towards the showdown here. We will actually, Lockhart's going to pop up briefly in another book. I don't remember where. So we will get some closure on this character eventually. How fun. But right now, the floor is going to collapse. And Harry, Ron, and Ginny are in the Chamber of Secrets with, oh, hey, it's Tom Riddle who is a memory projection diary something something, actually secretly just the soul of a wizard. Uh, Ron is stuck on the other side of the cave-in to like be Oh, that's right, that's right. He doesn't go into the chamber with them, but he is there. He gets trapped by the cave-in. And now we're going to get some very quick hand-wavy explanations and then just a sequence of convenient plot devices to get out of here. Mm-hmm. This is possibly, and Rowling is guilty at times of hand-wavy plot solutions, mm-hmm. but this is possibly the worst individual sequence in the Harry Potter franchise of, oh no, I've written myself into a corner. Ah, uh, magic bird, magic hat, magic sword. All right, problem solved. Yeah, he can't look at it in the eyes. Well, the bird's going to claw its eyes out. How come the bird doesn't yep. get petrified? Don't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So Harry's going to briefly talk to Tom Riddle, who's going to say, guess what? It's secretly me, Lord Voldemort. Yeah, sure is. It's little Voldemort. I even wrote a clever anagram in my diary to hide that secret from you. That was good. That that was bad, right? Like, that wasn't... (laughs) Incredibly dumb. That was real dumb, right? Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is a thing for 10-year-olds to feel clever about when they find. Uh, yeah, this is a movie about wizards for children. <laughs> Gotta keep telling myself that. So the showdown very much is Fox, who we haven't mentioned, who is Dumbledore's pet phoenix, mm-hmm. has recently been reborn. He's going to show up and blind the basilisk. The problem is there's still no way to kill a basilisk, but Fox was carrying the sorting hat with him. For reasons. Inside the sorting hat was the sword of Godric Gryffindor, another founder of the school. Oh, I see. They were. See, I've been spelling it wrong all this time. It's sorting hat like sword. (laughs) The sorting hat. That's where so, that's where it gets its name, right? Because you can pull swords yeah, out of it. Definitely, <laughs> it's really it's really just a magician's hat. It doesn't. There's nothing else really special about it. Oh, that would be amazing. So there's just a sword in here, a special, super important sword with the power to kill basilisks. Apparently. So that's all fine, except for the basilisk scratches Harry. So Harry's going to die because basilisks have deadly poison. Mm-hmm. Venom. Uh, actually, uh, Mark, it's venom uh, because you see, poison happens whenever uh, you eat it, like when you bite into something. But venom is whenever it bites into you. So uh, technically, you're incorrect. <laughs> so, thank goodness, there's one more ridiculous plot spackle left in the quiver because Fox is going to cry. Because mm-hmm. the tears of a phoenix, they are the antidote for basilisk venom. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you got that Fine. magic bird, magic hat, magic sword, magic tears. We're out of here. Yep. <laughs> the, I do like the one part of this finale that I liked because I think the third act is a mess compared to the rest of this movie, which I really enjoy. Uh, is whenever he's just stabbing the hell out of the book and it's bleeding everywhere. I thought that was cool. I was like, that book can bleed. (laughs) Check out that book bleeding. (laughs) So we'll get a, we'll get a little bit of wrap up here at the end. Mm Dumbledore is going to cancel finals or whatever. Okay. I thought you were going to be like, he's going to cancel Malfoy or something. (laughs) I'm stuck in 2019 here, guys. Hermione's going to be fine. Everyone's going to have kind of a happy reunion. Mm-hmm. And the movie's going to end on a showdown between Harry and Lucius Malfoy, wherein Harry tricks Lucius into giving Dobby a sock. Yep. Now I know what that means. <laughs> it definitely sounds like a creepy, not safe for work metaphor of some sort, giving him <laughs> the old sock. But really, the established understanding between wizards and their subservient elves is that if they are gifted an article of clothing, that means they are gifted their freedom, which means the wizards are very aware of the fact that they are actively enslaving these people because there's a mechanism whereby freedom is granted. Right. Removes any sort of explanation for how they might otherwise have some sort of good arrangement here that's working out for everybody. Mm-hmm. Nope, they know. They know because they have a way to let them be free. If you are in possession of someone else's freedom, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. But hey, now Dobby's a free elf, and Dobby is overjoyed. Dobby's super stoked. 
and does sparkle hands at Malfoy, who flies back and is like, I'll, I'll get you next time, Potter. <laughs> yep. And then they have a dinner, and Hagrid walks in, and everyone's like, yay, Harry Uncle's back. And yep. I think that's after Hermione walks in, they're like, yay, actual capable student is back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that is the end of Chamber of Secrets. So where do we put this? I didn't really have to think too hard about this one, or perhaps I should have thought a bit harder for what we're doing, but things can still move around. I enjoyed this movie overall more than the last one, up until the third act. Yeah, I think I tipped my hand up front when I said this was a much more confident and well-realized movie. The first Mm -hmm. one felt tentative. I enjoy this one a lot more. It also helps that the kids have aged just enough to really be more comfortable actors. I've noticed this because Emma Watson in particular, the difference in her acting between the last movie and this Mm. movie feel like night and day to me because in the other one it feels like she's just like barely hanging on to this whole like acting thing and maybe putting out some passable performances where i actually find her character performances in this movie like competent character performances yeah i think it is not a stretch to say of the main characters in this film mm-hmm Obviously, some of the adults are incredibly established actors. They're Alan Rickman's an all-timer. Absolutely. But of the sort of core kid performers, Mm -hmm. Emma Watson is very much the one who eventually stands out as a legitimate star actor. She's very, Mm -hmm. very... And not that, you know, Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint and uh, some of the others haven't gone on to have very good careers, but she is definitely the one that sort of becomes the standout. Anyway, I'm with you. I think Chamber of Secrets is handily a better movie than Sorcerer's Stone. I think starting as early as the next film is we're going to start having some challenging discussions on how to rank these. So I'm excited for that one. Yeah, me too. And next up, we'll be covering Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The Third One Sucks is a Retrograde Orbit Radio production. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at the Third One Sucks or email us at the Third One Sucks at gmail.com, where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future. That's the the number three RD One Sucks at gmail.com. If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at RetrogradeOrbitRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel.